I didn't grow up with the knowledge that church was a place that could be traumatic, that could produce racist rhetoric. And I, I became aware very quickly that not everyone understands and not everyone even cares. All these things are things that are important that we do in the secular world and we don't find in the church because we don't, we don't acknowledge that we have a problem. I just had to err on the side of love, I feel like, because I had seen what happened when people didn't err on the side of love, and it was very hurtful for me. That's what's so good about being in a relationship, an interracial relationship. You learn so much about, especially from a place of privilege, what it's like to be othered. My name is Ayanna Lage. My name is Wagner Lage, and, and this, this is my story. story. Hey everybody and welcome into another episode of Seeking Peace by Beauty Saves, a podcast that explores grace, justice, and reconciliation. My name's Aaron and this is my wife Kaylee. Hey there. And it's going to be another really great conversation, another uh, great story to tell. Uh, In this week's episode, we talked to Ayana and Wagner Leish. Uh, They're really, really cool people. Um, Kaylee knows them both a little bit better than I do, uh, but we got a chance to get uh, get to know them a little bit better and hear their story. And I think it's an important story uh, for them to tell and an important story for for people to hear. Yeah, definitely. And and, and in the midst of telling their story, um, their background is growing up in church. Um, Ayana will talk about uh, her dad as a pastor. Uh, Wagner used to uh, be... Um, in full-time ministry. So theologically, they, they're pretty sound. So they're going to throw out some different theological words. Uh, what I'm asking you to do is to just not get bogged down by them. It, it's okay if there's a word or a, a, a phrase or something that you don't necessarily understand. That's okay. Hear the heart behind the message. Hear the feeling in the message. Uh, hear what they're saying without getting bogged down by the words. But if, but if you want to Google the words, you're more than welcome to do that. But I guess the point I'm making is listen to their story and the way they tell it. Don't necessarily get bogged down with the different theological questions. Yeah. And, and being fully transparent, <laughs> we had to look up some of the, <laughs> some of the terms they yeah, use. Definitely. Um, so it's, it's nothing where you need to feel like an outsider if you don't know what they mean, because we had to look up some terms too. Um, so no problem there. And another part of this is they are going to talk about um, some topics and some things that are basically labeled as political issues. Um, and they may have stances on, on those political issues that you completely disagree with, but the, the point that we really want to stress behind this is that the issues, um, those hot button topic issues that, that are discussed, um, or sometimes avoided while they're called political issues, there are real people behind those issues. There's real people that are affected by the political decisions that we vote on and the political decisions that are enacted in our country and in our world. There are real people consequences to some of those decisions. And they're Um, not always that far away from you. Sometimes they're in your own congregation, your own small group, your own friend group. And Ayana and Wagner will talk about that a little bit more. And that's the part that we really um, hope that you can key in on is, is understanding and you can, you're going to be able to hear in their voices the hurt that they felt and that they still feel um, because of some of the political decisions that were made, some people in their congregation, some of their friends 
um, we're, we're very callous to the real world effects that some of these issues are, we're having on both Ayana and Wagner. Um, so that, that's the big thing. They, they may say some things that if you're, if you lean one way politically, you may not really like it, but the part that we really want you to hear is the, their story, the heart of their story and the, the real pain that they have felt and still feel today because of certain decisions that are made uh, and because of some stances that people take. So without further ado, I'm so excited to uh, ha share this conversation with you uh, with Ayana and Wagner. They start off by telling us a little bit more about their relationship. I'm Ayana Leish and here with my husband Wagner. And um, the very funny thing about how we met is that we actually disagree about how we met. Yeah, because I, I believe, I know <laughs> that we met uh, at the local mall. Oh, really? The at, local mall? In the summer of 2009. Um, she alleges that we met several days later. Okay, at a, well, at we, we both agree that the friend's house happened. I do not remember going to the mall and meeting him. Well, yes, but... Just because you don't remember it doesn't mean it didn't. Okay. Well, there is how we met. We met in high school <laughs> over the summer, right before our junior year of high school. And it was either at a friend's house or through mutual friends at the mall. But either way, it happened, and now we're married. I mean, the point here is that obviously I wasn't <laughs> because I, it took her two times meeting me to know who I was. Whereas it only took me one time. Okay. Her, so. What's so funny about this to me is that they're literally exact same thing happened to Aaron and I, I don't remember Aaron remembers meeting me in a pizza parlor. I don't remember meeting him till much <laughs> later in that evening when we went to like a like bar club thing. Oh yeah. And, and he like remembers meeting me and he's always like, yeah, we met at a pizza parlor. And I'm like, I was really focused on my pizza, I guess, because <laughs> I don't remember you. Uh, yeah, I guess I wasn't memorable enough. Oh, that's funny. Well, Wagner can relate. Kindred spirits. <laughs> yeah, I feel your pain. <laughs> so, what do you guys? What do you guys do now? And where do you live? Um. So we moved. Um, to right, right this second, we're in Wesley Chapel, Florida, which is just north of Tampa, but we are in the process of house hunting, which is very scary. Um, I work in digital content writing and, and uh, I am a sales uh, associate at a, um, at a boring <laughs> maintenance supply that firm. on the record. <laughs> <laughs> I am. A, how about this? This is more uh, spicy. I'm an ex full time worship leader. An ex full time. He is an ex full time worship leader. Yeah, that would be a great segue. Nice. Did you guys both grow up in the church? Oh yeah. I mean, my dad's a pastor. Um, okay. So I mean, I grew up in a very, very conservative, not conservative politically, but conservative, theolo like theology wise. Um, Pentecostal movement and then yeah and I grew up in a Brazilian Assemblies of God church yeah so AG that's my background as well um I, and because it's my background and because you know you grow up and, and you do research on your own and you kind of figure out your own faith um I think it's really interesting to ask 
what maybe changed for you? Like, what did you learn growing up that you kind of thought like, oh, this is just a fact. And then you grew up and you were like, oh, actually, maybe, maybe it's not what I thought, or maybe it's not what I was taught. Mm, well, for me, I think for Yana, this question, I think is a lot more obvious. I, uh, maybe in terms of just how um, her faith developed, like, especially at like a younger age, like, kind of, are you answering for me or do you well, want me to answer? No, I, <laughs> I mean, I'll answer for me. Okay, I'll worry about Yeah. Okay. So my, for me, the most, the, the most practical answer, like the most surface level is like, I believe things like when I was growing up for some reason, I don't even know if this is all assemblies of God church. It might just be my uh, upbringing or whatever. But I believe that like, if you don't pray to ask God for forgiveness for your sins right away, Um, you know, if you like die in a tragic accident or something like that, like you're at risk of going to hell. So then I would always like every five minutes, try to remember, like it's very traumatic growing up, try to remember to pray for forgiveness or else I would, you know, cause you'd have unconfessed sins and then you'd end up like suffering the consequences. So that was a silly thing. I think over the years, I kind of started to dismantle on pack and then like, you know, one of those things was just like, I don't believe that anymore. But then there are bigger questions that I'm still, uh, I think, um, wrestling with. And I guess part of the whole, uh, you know, sometimes if you're not with the entire mainstream Christian movement and like what uh, evangelical churches say, if you like let go of one thing, it feels like all of a sudden everybody thinks that you're letting go of everything. But um, especially with like things being so divisive politically and um, with people being on such different sides on things like, um, things like hell and stuff like that become difficult to wrestle with. Um, you know, things like salvation and things like, uh, just, you know, even down to like how we view each other, um, and what we should do about those things can constantly change and constantly be in flux as I think God also speaks through culture and society and how that moves. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like, and I might, I can't even share my church testimony here. I mean, that deserves its own podcast series, but uh, <laughs> I am um, the the basis of it is that I I grew up in a, a one the oneness Pentecostal movement. So there was a lot of you know holy rollers. We spoke. We believed you had to speak in tongues to be saved. Um, we definitely took the Bible literally. We did not believe in the Trinity. So it's like a lot of things that were essential to my faith like to our, to how we look at the world, I later realized I didn't believe. And I think that because of that, that I probably had an easier time than a lot of, than Wagner or a lot of people reaching a point where I'm like the Bible, not everything is literal in the Bible. Cause I'm like, in order for me to come to Orthodox Christianity, where I agree with the Nicene Creed, um, I had to believe that the Bible that I knew and then this God who was, one person not three and it required you to speak in tongues to go to heaven you know i had to realize that these scriptures could be interpreted and that there was nuance so i mean i think that the i mean so much has changed for me but the bigger yeah like i don't i i, I think that i think that i have a more forgiving view of god and i i you know that i i don't believe that he is trying to trick me or you know looking down on me in disappointment so. Was that like an earth, like shattering moment or, or was it more of like a process 
Um, I mean, I definitely think it was a process. I feel like, honestly, probably since I was 15, around the time that I've met Wagner, I feel like my faith has been changing and evolving, something that was once very scary. Because, I mean, I feel like similar to Wagner, I once worried. I was like, okay, what happens if I'm in the middle of trying to figure out if I even believe in God and then the rapture happens? Like, would I make it? Would I not? Would I be left behind? Because we read those traumatic books, you know, as kids. Um, Rapture anxiety is real, y'all. Yeah, we both struggled with that growing up. So I was afraid, Um, you know. I I mean, because my primary goal was making it to heaven, flying away to glory. Um, And so I was kind of like, I don't even want to question anything that challenges how I view my faith. Because just got to make it out. Yeah, you just got to make it out. And so I think that once I realized, like, okay, God is not, like, you know, God's not afraid of me having a brain. He actually gave me one. So it's okay to question things, even the sacred things. Even people think maybe sacrilegious. Like, it's okay to ask those questions. And so I feel like through that, I arrived at a very orthodox, like, you know, like charismatic, you know, very like I mean I don't want to name churches I don't want to say Bethel but I'm like oh god who can I name but you know the charismatic movement I mean yeah. so you know assemblies of God but a little bit even more loosey-goosey than assemblies of God and so that was like I was kind of fitting in the mold finally I believed everything that they believed until I did it <laughs> yeah. so now we're kind of in an interesting place faith-wise but um yeah, we, we go to an awesome church um, that's very similar to a Presbyterian church and um very liberal worldview and we, and we love it. So what was it? Because it, it, it's a pretty, you know, drastic change from where you were, you know, thinking that even doubts like that, that jeopardizes your salvation to have doubts to where you are now. What, what kind of helped you start to make those changes in your belief system? I think that, I mean, and I, I think that I can speak for both of us when I say that it was just, as we got older, those beliefs were challenged, you know, because I feel like I very much lived in a vacuum and, you know, back, I mean, you were the same way. I mean, you, now you did have, you know, doubts throughout high school and you read challenging books, but still we, you know, we very intentionally tuned a lot of things out. Yeah. I mean, I think I operated mostly in abstraction um, in high school, you know, even the doubts that I had were doubts based on abstractions. They were based on abstract theories and, and things that I, you know, philosophical ideas. I think uh, one thing that's interesting we always talk about is that um, for Ayana, her faith was challenged at a much younger age because um, on a fundamental level with Christianity, because I feel like you had the unique perspective of being part of this movement that was so similar to the evangelical church at large in some ways, but so fundamentally different on a couple of different specific things. Right. And so for those specific things to be interpreted so differently by one group, but then be interpreted in an entirely different way from the majority of Christianity, I think puts you in a place where you almost, when you encounter other Christians, would have to be faced with that. Well, I mean, yeah. I think that, like, the extremists in the movement that I was growing up in say, said, okay, alternatarians are held down. And that was, like, a very small percentage, but they were there. Then I look at the evangelical church and the, you know, very theological people there say that all modalists or, you know, oneness Pentecostals are going to hell. So I'm like, okay, you know, I have a unique perspective of being a part of both movements. And I right. think that this is just a lot of, you know, pomp and, you know, yeah. like – big talk. It's like, you guys don't actually understand 
what the other side even believes. So I think that I kind of carried that with me through life. And I don't know. Yeah. So when it came to things like, you know, just the hot button things that people talk about right now, like, you know, abortion or gay marriage or different things that um, are highly contested. That people vote on. Yeah. That the, people yeah, vote on. And, yes. And, you know, it's 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 easy for you to see that, um, you know, there is a merit to the other side. There is like no one really knows for sure, you know, and right. so you have to make informed decisions based on the people around you and kind of what it feels like God is saying to culture at large. Um, I think that was, what's I'm sorry. I didn't mean to catch you. Off. Oh, no, I was cutting you off. I'm so sorry. I was just going to. I think where you guys are going is really interesting. And I'm wondering, like, do you think that made you one more open and two more empathetic to people who maybe did have those differing opinions? Yeah. Well, I think that we're also missing an important part of the conversation, which is that. Uh, were you going to talk about immigration or mention it? Yeah. I mean, I, well, okay. I, I could, say- I put him on the spot. <laughs> Sorry. My family immigrated here from Brazil when I was two years old. Um, so uh, they overstayed a tourist visa. So essentially I was um, undocumented for the majority of my life. And that kind of put me in a unique place as yes. well. Because, you know, you have this like, I have a, a conservative background. But then there's this other thing that's like, I'm not with most conservatives on. Right. Know? Like Wagner, when I met him, was very, very opposed to abortion very opposed to gay marriage but I mean and it isn't funny but it kind of is I was like really you're a Republican like you don't even have your green card bro they wanted to deport <laughs> you <laughs> so it was kind of like yeah that's not gonna work um so I think that that definitely plays into it and then of course I think that for me America I just always I think that it just you know made it so much harder for me to other people and to be like okay you know women who've had abortions you know are are this or people who are marrying people they love or that I mean I just had to err on the side of love I feel like because I had seen what happened when people didn't didn't err on the side of love and it was very hurtful for me um so yeah I think that honestly as sad as it sounds I think that our the oppression or like struggles that we face made us more compassionate. I think that's very true. I think that as we like, I think that's how I became a little bit like more engaged because I felt things as a woman and like, yes, I'm white. And yes, I have like levels of privilege that like I definitely have. Um, I think that, you know, in sports, I'm still a woman and in certain areas is still a good old boys club and there were times where I felt uncomfortable and then going through that experience allowed me to see how much that could affect like other people who like their uncomfort is like even more heightened than like mine would be. Yeah. So when you guys um, got together, like that was in the mid two thousands, I would imagine did you see it being in an interracial relationship or like what was maybe said that like you laughed off then that maybe today you would say like, Hey, that's not really cool. No, I mean, I think that I, in general, now I, I have to say that I grew up in a majority white 
community. When my parents moved to the suburb that they still live in, the town was 4% black. So it was basically, I think the breakdown, it was around 90% white. It was very, very white. It's a little bit more diverse now, but still not anywhere near being a diverse area. Um, so I say all that to say that I think that I had been conditioned, even though my parents were so like unapologetically teaching me self-love and you know, the churches that I grew up in were predominantly black, which I also think is important because I didn't experience racial hurt that I experienced in church until Wagner and I really got together and I, you know, started going to, you know, predominantly white churches. Um, but I think that I've been conditioned to laugh everything off. It was like, unless someone called me a racial slur, you know, I was going to take it in stride. I really didn't didn't understand what microaggressions were. So I think that when we got together, I, um, I don't know. I think I also had an allies self-hatred, but you know, like people would joke like, Oh my God, like, you know, I always knew you were too high maintenance for a black guy or like it, it basically made it sad. They made it seem as if I were too, thought that I was too good for black men. And basically, you know, I think that I faced the brunt of it. I think that occasionally we would get, you know, we still get people who look at us kind of like side-eyed. We were actually um, at dinner with a dear friend and they brought their check together and then our checks separate. We were on a double date. This happens to us all the time. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so there are things that, I mean, I honestly feel like, okay, like we have been blessed. And there are people experiencing hate crimes. Yeah. I mean, there are times like the, on our honeymoon, I guess people were sharing our wedding pictures pretty far, far and wide up, you know, right after we got married. And some troll messaged us both race traitor. And it made me cry. Yeah. Because I saw it on our honeymoon. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, not to downplay what's happened, it's all been, I, I mean, microaggressions lead to macroaggressions. So, I mean, I don't want to say like, oh, it's not a big deal because no one has like physically assaulted us. But I do think that we have been somewhat lucky in that um, we haven't faced any like threats or violence because of our relationship. Yeah, for me, it's little, it's the little things I I didn't realize could happen um, because growing up, I mean, I'm you know very much like I am from another country, but I'm from a Latin American country, but I you know I look like a white American, and so. Um, for me, it was all these little things that when we started dating, I didn't realize. And I realized like, huh, that does happen. Or oh, that is like how some certain people will talk to us or, or some people will talk to Tayana. And um, that's what's so good about being in a relationship, an interracial relationship, I feel like, is you learn so much about, especially from a place of privilege, what it's like to be othered. Um, even just not even not to say that you're othered yourself, like to an extreme degree at all, but. Um, to where you can start to see it firsthand, like when it happens and you start to notice like, wow, that is like really intense. And like, that's really hard, you know? And so um, that's just a, a unique thing. That's yeah. part of our perspective, I guess. So a couple of things that, that you guys mentioned, um, you know, Ayana, you said you grew up mostly in, in a black church and then started going to a more predominantly white church and, Wagner, you said you had, you know, pretty, pretty conservative views, then obviously the, the conservative view of immigration and that sort of thing didn't really jive with you. So can, can you kind of, you know, because I think for, for white evangelicals, 
it's a very foreign feeling to have the major faith leaders say something or promote ideas that can be very harmful or oppressive to white evangelicals. But for a lot of people, whether you're a person of color or you're gay or, you know, whatever it might be to, to put you in a group that is more on the margins, um, can, can you kind of describe what that's like when you have your faith that's so important to you, but then you have faith leaders that are either silent or they're promoting or their silence is complicity and these ideas and systems that are ultimately really oppressive um, to, to people who are in a minority group. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, what I, yeah. I mean, there's so much, I feel like for me, I, okay. Growing up, obviously, you know, I'm a black woman, but I grew up relatively financially privileged. I, you know, I'm straight, I'm cisgendered. Um, I'm able-bodied. So I had all of this privilege. So being, growing up in black Pentecostal churches, I honestly was so naive. I didn't even realize, and even the church that Wagner and I met at was small. And I don't remember if we covered, you know, social issues, but we were like 15, 16. Um, and it just never bothered me. So I think that I was kind of, I didn't grow up with the knowledge that church was a place that could be traumatic, that could produce racist rhetoric. Um, it was not something that I experienced firsthand until I was an adult. Um, and so I think that, I mean, for us, man, I mean, it, and it's so hard because I know that if anyone listens to this and knows anything about us, they'll be able to identify the churches very easily, but there's, there's really no way around it. I think that we just had experiences where church leaders showed, I feel like it all started around the time that Michael Brown died, which would have been 2014 in Ferguson. And church leaders either showed indifference or they showed, and I, I became aware very quickly that I was like, not everyone understands and not everyone even cares. And they, and that was the first time that I was like, you know, people who I am sitting in the pews with may not see me as fully human, you know, which no one is saying unless they are like, you know, a neo-Nazi. But the way that they view the black men gunned down in the streets often informs the way that they're going to view me. Um, so, I mean, that that was difficult because I became very active and I had all of these white evangelicals on my friends list who were just going to great lengths to ignore the pain that was being expressed and to say, OK, but. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about this? There's just lack of empathy. Um, so, I mean, it was very, very isolating. And I'll let Wagner talk about the election, and then I can go back into it. because I just want to make sure we cover all our bases. Um, I feel like that was probably the time that you realized. Yeah, I think the election was a turning point for me. Obviously, the 2016 election. Um, it, it really was this whole, and again, a lot of this comes from being white, being someone who was involved in the church for a long time and who kind of like as someone who's in the worship crowd, um, you, you're kind of in that like space where you're a public face and people kind of um, you're kind of almost untouchable in certain ways. Like people do admire you and respect you uh, whether, you, whether or not you really merit it. Um, and so I feel like I was largely shielded from like the, the majority of like uh, things that, you know, um, I felt 
that I later found out to be really problematic. Um, but it really all came to the, to, to a head when the election came because, you know, I started worrying about my family. I started worrying about people close to me. I started worrying about myself. And, I, and for the first time, I felt as though, you know, the, the trend was there was pushback towards immigration. There's pushback towards, um, you know, uh, just people being able to like the dreamers and people who benefited from DACA, like those were all me. And I felt for the first time that that was in jeopardy rather than, Hey, we're making, we're breaking through, we're making ground. Um, we're, we're allowing these people to like have and came who found out about my situation, found out about what I'd grown up with, found out about the people, some people around me that were in similar situations. And instead of saying like, yes, I feel your pain. Like, yes. Um, how can I help? Or, no, I can't conscientiously make a decision to vote for someone who stands against who you are in, in your path. Um, you know, instead they would say, yes, I see you. I acknowledge you. I feel your pain, but uh, it's the lesser of two evils and we're still going to do what we're going to do. Um, or, or even uh, some people would say like, wow, I can't believe you're undocumented or wow, I can't believe you grew up undocumented, but you know what? I don't see you any differently. Well, any person who's who grows up in any sort of marginalized way or uh, experiences any sort of systemic oppression can tell you that that doesn't help. Um, as someone who has been through that, you have to have been been seen, and you have to have been known, and you have to. What helps is when people understand that yes, I, I do see you differently. Yes, you are different. You have a different experience, and I validate that, and I understand that. Um, and I think that just wasn't happening for me. And, right. And, 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 and in the church. And I think that that was the biggest issue because when people say, Oh, I'm colorblind or, Oh, I don't look at you any differently. It's like, okay, what you're basically willing yourself to complacency because by not looking at me differently, not looking at Batman differently, you're also able to ignore the unique struggles that we face mm -hmm. that you do not have to deal with. So you don't have to change your behavior because you've decided you know, and that's the thing. I was growing up tell, being told in church, like, you know, not grown up, but as an adult told by fellow people at church that, oh, my God, I'm blacker than you. You act so white. And I, and I think that it is racism, but I also think that it is a way to kind of deal with the discomfort that may come from, like, having to face you know what I mean? A person of color or a gay person or an undocumented person and reconcile that with your view of that group as a whole. Yeah. And when I think about it, it really is, uh, it speaks to the church at large with this rhetoric that, you know, uh, we, we need unity. We need unity in the church and we need um, diversity, but we don't need diversity for diversity's sake. We need diversity in, for the sake of inclusion. And that means for me that you, um, instead of saying, because the underlying idea, I don't view you any differently, is you're basically saying you're still, you can still be one of us. You're still, you know, a part of the fold, right? But, um, but that's dangerous because I don't want to be part of the fold. I don't want to fit the mold. I want to be viewed and validated for who I am and what I've faced and be a part of the group regardless of that or be a right. part of the group because of that even, you know? And so, um, and that's the danger with the talk about unity because you're trying to, to make a certain way. Even the word reconciliation for me is reconciling, but reconciling back to what? You're reconciling back to whiteness, back to norms, back to the mold 
that the church has created. I think that it just has to be radical change. And I think that oftentimes people, especially with Wagner's immigration situation around the election, would moralize it in strange ways. Wagner has dealt with a lot of conflicting emotions, but he never expressed to any of his fellow white congregants that he felt guilty or ashamed. But people would immediately say, I don't view you differently. And it's like, okay, well, that tells me a lot about how you view undocumented immigrants, how you view people who came here in overstayed visas, you know, like, because for me, of course, I didn't view Wagner differently because I never thought anything negative about, you know, I didn't really have an informed opinion about immigration until we met. Um, so, sorry. No, no, Long that's, answer, no, that's all really good. Um I, I think one really uh, common misconception about reconciliation is that reconciliation means let's meet in the middle. That's not that's not reconciliation, you know, especially when you're talking about, you know, groups of people that have been oppressed for a long time. The, the majority needs to move a lot further towards the minority. Um, right. So when when we try to kind of make reconciliation a little bit more tangible. So for example, like I know in the church reconciliation, a lot of times just means let's not make any waves. Let's make sure like nobody's too upset or at least you can't see how people are upset. So like, you know, if, if I get really, if I get really angry at Kaylee for some stupid reason and I yell and I scream and I cuss and I storm off and then I come back and I'm like, hey, I'm really sorry. That That's unacceptable. And she says, yeah, I forgive you. Like that, a lot of the people in the church, I think, view that as reconciliation, but that's not reconciliation. She forgave me, which is what we're called to do as Christians. But the other side of reconciliation is justice. So reconciling right. in that sense, to me, is not saying I'm sorry. You say you're sorry, but then I go and talk to somebody and say, hey, I have an anger problem and I, I need to fix it. And then once right. I fix it, I can go back to my wife, go back to Kaylee and say, hey, I've worked on this. I've fixed it. And now she feels that she can say something to me that I may not like it, but she doesn't have to be scared that I'm going to fly off the handle. So right. there's there's the forgiveness side is definitely part of reconciliation, but then there's the justice side. So what what do you guys think is needed or what steps do you want to see happen for reconciliation to really start to happen and in a way where the the majority is actually moving towards the minority i think that for me i and i'll note now that the church we go to is not an evangelical church which after our last church experience when Wagner was in full-time ministry was very very intentional um i pretty much said i would never i will never attend not i never say never but Right now, I will not attend a predominantly white evangelical megachurch if you offered me a million dollars to do so because we left so wounded. I think that for me, there are very practical steps that the church can take that, in my experience, the church may not take. But I think that it starts with changing who we listen to, you know, starting to listen to women, to people of color, to immigrants to people who identify as LGBTQ, to people who are disabled. I mean, the list goes on and on because I feel like, you know, when you look at scripture, historically, Jesus 
spoke through or Jesus used and God spoke through people on the margins, people who the rest of society wasn't listening to, who they didn't deem worthy, um, which is why they're Jesus. And I think that unfortunately, when I look at what we've experienced in the church, I'm like, man, if Jesus walked into one of our churches, you know, there's a chance that he'd face some of what we did. Um, and so I think that for me, it's like make an effort not to just listen and not to just meet behind closed doors, but to actively elevate these voices, have them speaking from your platform, who cares if people leave, who cares if the tides are affected, challenge people's worldviews, and to also work to end, work against white supremacy, white supremacy, work against systemic racism, you know, connect. You know what I mean? And churches are so segregated right now, which I always thought was a bad thing. But after the experience that we had, I mean, our current church is very diverse. But I, you know, I don't know. I With the way that we were treated or that I specifically was treated at our white megachurch, I remember thinking, I hope that no person of color ever has to experience this, you know? So I think that we kind of have to, rather than just saying, oh, wouldn't it be great if churches looked like heaven and there were people of every color in the audience? Or instead of saying we're going to sing a gospel song on Sunday and, you know, that's going to be how we acknowledge diversity. No, I mean, it's kind of what you were saying, Aaron. I feel like, you know, repenting is not saying I'm sorry. It's what happens, like, after you decide that you're sorry. You know, it's the work that comes from that. You know, and, and Wagner had people, which I thought was very interesting. Wagner had people personally apologize to him for voting for Trump. And I was, it, it still just, it, made, it honestly just made my, I felt very anxious and very put off because I was like, okay, it's, it's not a matter of, oh, I'm sorry, but you understand, right? It's like, no, you know, you acknowledge this and you put in the work if you're really sorry. Yeah. It's, but, like, it's like with any other thing in church, I think, uh, it, it has to be repentance, you know, and repentance isn't just, I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep doing what I do. It's like, no, I'm sorry, but I'm going to turn the other way. And, and renounce really right. the sin that's been committed. And, so. and from someone who was like at the administrative side of the church, can I just say it's very valuable. I think even something that even some churches in minority communities or communities that have more concentration of minorities don't even get right. It's the idea of representation, like, uh, I've been in churches before where you had a predominantly Hispanic or predominantly black area and you had white leadership. You know, the the, 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 the the leadership was heavily skewed in a way that didn't even match the demographic, let alone represent, you know, the people who uh, were there. And so that creates a lot of problems um, logistically, even just from a, you know, just from a representation standpoint, like there has to at least be some reflection or, or attempt at reflectional community itself. Right. Um, and then, you know, you'd be surprised a little goes a long way in terms of like ra- racial uh, kind of just sens- racial sensitivity programs within churches that are especially big churches that are basically corporations, um, you know, diversity training. All these things are things that are important that we do in the secular world and we don't find in the church because we don't we don't acknowledge that we have a problem. And we don't acknowledge that these things can happen in church. Um and yeah. so those practical things are so important as well from an HR standpoint, from a, you know, from a business standpoint, there are certain things that companies in the world do that the church doesn't do and, and should do. Right. Okay. This will probably wrap things up, but I just, through all of this, have there been any 
encouraging experiences and how how have you found God through these painful experiences? Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh man. I, um, I think that for me, um, I, I had a really rough time at our last church. And even though my husband was on full-time worship staff for the last, I'd want to say five or six months that we were there. I only attended church pretty much for Christmas and Easter. I refused to go because I had been wounded so deeply by pastoral leadership and not there, but there were just incidents that I could not ignore that were racially charged, that were deeply troubling and that I, you know, man. So I basically emerged from that done with religion, um, angry and bitter at anyone who said, you know, well, you should really practice forgiveness. That's what Jesus would do. And I'm like, okay, you know, well, that's why Jesus is Jesus and worshiped by billions of people. And I just <laughs> have an Instagram presence. Okay. <laughs> no, but I, so I think that I, you know, I kind of emerged from the ashes, just so unsure of what to believe. And I feel like I just found God. Um, man, I just feel like I was, awakened to to you know to the voice of god and to the love of god around me who clung to me who reminded me of truth who affirmed me who validated me and said you're not crazy you're not being dramatic you're experiencing you're being bullied you know you know and, and i think that and then for us finding a church that elevates women that elevates people of color with a pastor who is so open to to learning and to doing better. And that has just reminded me so much of who God is. Because I could look at Christian liter- leaders on Twitter who are defending adultery and pornography and racism by saying, oh, all of a sudden and fallen short. But instead, I mean, in our local community, when we're looking at who's doing the work, who is actually trying to, you know, bring heaven to earth, you know, on earth as it is in heaven, not meaning that we're just all like singing spontaneous time, but that we are fighting to end injustice. Um, I think that that has been really the top thing for us that, I mean, I think that we were in this bubble and we were just like, okay, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump which felt to me like I probably can't curse on your podcast. So I'm going to say crap, but I mean, the thing was like 81% of the people we know don't give a crap about us. We do not matter, you know? And for Wagner, it was like, he was facing a very real deportation risk at the time of the election. So that was something that just absolutely, I just was completely wrecked and Almost to the point, it felt like someone had died the way I was mourning. Because I thought all of our friends who have prayed for us and have cried with us about Wagner and him becoming a permanent resident, which thank God has happened, at the, you know, has happened, they all voted for this man who says he wants to deport Wagner and everyone like him. Um, they voted for this man who says all these terrible things about people of color. And I just felt like, how am I going to do this? I was just in such a panic. And I think that it was just kind of 
getting to a place where I could step back and recognize, you know, this predominant American white evangelical movement is for a lot of people. I have, I know people of color who are still in it and that's fine, but it's not for me. I don't have to be traumatized in church. I just don't. Um, and so I think that when we found that, we found a church that was open and affirming and loving and radical, it was just like everything, um, everything kind of made sense. So. Yeah. And I think from the place that you're at, um, it's hard, you know, a, a prophet, I think, not to say as in a way like, oh, we're prophets, like, but in the sense that you, if you're speaking against something that the majority of Christianity is not with, are you speaking against a movement? I say I consider that a prophetic voice because you're speaking into things. Assuming that, that it's based in truth right. and you're not just, you know, saying it to say it. No, I mean, and it's, so I think that, yeah. So you, when you're in that space, I feel like sometimes it's, it's just great because you, um, in the sense that it's not great then, but it, you see the fruit of it, you know, as time goes on. So, you know, I, I think that there are certain things and certain conversations that came out of that season that, um, I'm only now starting to see the fruit of it. I'm only now starting to see, hey, actually, when you said that, I was thinking about that for a long time. And now I'm starting to see why I was wrong. And it takes time, but it happens, you know, and I think I, you can always be encouraged in that. Yeah, for sure. All right. So that was our conversation with Ayana and Wagner. Um, really, really thankful that we got a chance to to talk to them and, and to hear their story. And um, there was a bunch of different parts and hearing their story that jumped out. But one, one of the biggest parts that really jumped out to me is when Wagner was talking about um, when he, when he was interacting with people uh, at his church or friends he had uh, and they told him, well, Oh, you know, you may be undocumented, but I, I don't, I don't see you that way. You know, I don't, I don't see you any differently. And Ayana made the point that that if, if you make that statement, it actually says a lot about the way you feel about immigrants. And it's something that, honestly, the, when we first had that conversation with Ayana and Wagner, um, I, I didn't really fully complete the thought in my head. And it wasn't until I went back and listened a few times where I fully understood what, what they were talking about. And, and essentially, you know, if you've ever said something like that, again, this isn't to shame you or any, anything um, like that, but basically when someone looks at a person who is an immigrant um, and says, oh yeah, well, but I don't see you that way or I don't see you any differently. Essentially what you're saying is, you know, I see immigrants as bad people that take jobs or that aren't trustworthy or whatever it might be because you as a person who has a good job, you're a nice person, um, you know, I respect you. I don't see you as an immigrant because of those things it actually does say a lot about what someone, the way someone feels about immigrants or whatever group you might say um, when you, you say a phrase like that. Well, I, I, don't, I don't see you that way. I see you as one of me. Yeah, and I mean, Aaron, you have a personal experience in this as well. You grew up Mexican. You are Mexican. And there have been times where people are saying something about Mexicans and they'll look at you and say, oh, no offense, and it's like, well, I wasn't offended, but now I am. Right. And it, it's <laughs> before they even say anything like this happened to me so many times growing up and when I was in college, 
um, somebody would be telling a story. And at the very beginning of the story, they'd say something like, you know, I was at Walmart and I saw this Mexican guy. And then they'd look at me and say, oh, no offense. And it's like, well, that's actually really offensive because you haven't said anything about what happened. You just said you saw a Mexican guy and you think you think you're offending me. Essentially, that's what you're saying is that there's something inherently wrong about being Mexican. Yeah, I think I mean, and, and I, I guess I understand the sentiment behind it with like trying to be cautious and protecting people's feelings. But you also have to understand that why are you saying that? And start asking yourself some hard questions. Why do I say no offense? Why do I say, oh, but I see you differently or, oh, I don't view you any differently. Why are you saying some of those things? Is it because you have this inherent idea that Mexicans or immigrants or whatever group of people you're talking about are bad people or that they don't deserve the same type of respect as other people? Because if the answer is yes, well, then that's when you need to start checking yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it it kind of feeds into another point that they made when, when Wagner talked about, you know, diversity is important, but it's not diversity for the sake of diversity. It's diversity for the sake of inclusion. And I think a lot of times people can look at diversity as, um, okay, well, we have a bunch of people, you know, in our congregation or in our group or in our, you know, friend group that, you know, we have a bunch of different skin tones. There's a few people from, you know, different ethnic backgrounds or whatever. So that's diversity. And like that, that might be diversity. But the, the problem with that is having people of different colors when everybody still thinks the same and acts the same and has pretty much the same experiences, that's not really diversity. Diversity is having someone who looks different, but also acts different and thinks different from you. So that that's the part of diversity that is, that is really important. It's not so much that we're just all a bunch of different colors. It's important that there's a bunch of different experiences that we can uh, accept and, and open our eyes and open our minds to saying, oh, okay, there, there's other people who have different experiences and their beliefs, which are different from mine, are valid because of those different experiences. And it's about including those people in your group um, and including those people in your small group, in your home. And, you know, it, it's about accepting people as being different from you, whether you like it or not, just accepting them and learning more about them. And, and it goes to the point that Wagner made about how his eyes were opened to some of the experiences that Ayana had whenever he, uh, you know, got into this interracial relationship with Ayana. He, he said his eyes were opened. And in the same way, I mean, you don't have to marry someone for your eyes to be opened about what their experiences are. You, you, can, you can be friends with someone who's Muslim and realize that their experiences as a Muslim are so different than what your experiences are. And that when they go into uh, Home Depot, that their experiences and the way that people look at them might be very different from the way that people look at you when you walk into Home Depot. And it's about building those relationships and understanding that people are different and allowing that inclusiveness to happen through diversity. Yeah, and I think it's, that, that relationship part of things is, it, it's just so essential because, I mean, I think you, you look at, 
you know, who, who we've talked to to this point, you know, Ayana and Wagner are in an interracial relationship. When we talked to Andre, um, he, he grew up in a school that was, you know, in a, in a program that was mostly white kids. And through the people that we've talked to so far have had experiences uh, and environments that aren't necessarily typical uh, for people with their backgrounds. Um, so it's so, and, and I don't think it's a coincidence that, that all three, Ayana, Wagner, uh, and Andre, are very empathetic to people with different experiences because in a lot of cases, it was hard for them to find people who had that shared experience. Um, so with everything that we're saying, the, the, point, the point being that relationship is, is where it starts. For you and for me, you was someone who grew up in, in a very conservative home, me, someone who grew up in a very liberal home, our eyes started to be opened when we started to care more about our relationship than the belief system, not necessarily the belief systems, but the, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Instead of like being so proud or so firm in the stance, in the political view or in whatever worldview we had, we started opening our eyes our eyes up to each other and to recognizing again the humanity in each other erring on the side of love which is something else that Ayana talks about I mean I, I think that if you're ever in a situation and you think about what Jesus would do like Jesus would err on the side of love he would err on the side of grace he would err on the side of mercy and if as Christians and as humans we're not doing those things we're failing in a big way and so we need to err on the side of love. We need to err on the side of grace and mercy and understanding people. And the way you do that is by loving them and just showing this unfiltered, unexplained, but sometimes not even deserved love to people when they're down or when they need it or even when they're up and when they don't need it, you know, it, it, it's being there for someone and going through life with them. That's how worldviews get changed. And that's how eyes get opened and the blind start to see. Yeah. And I think it's the ideology is the word I was thinking of. It's when, you know, you're valuing your relationship with a person over your ideology and that's the way it should be. And Ayana said it, you know, perfectly when she talked about erring on the side of love, you know, as Christians, we believe that, that Jesus did things perfectly. Uh, we can't do things perfectly. We just, we can't. We're, our, our default setting is usually to screw things up as humans. So in order to protect ourselves from, from going too far down the wrong path, that's why we think it's so important to err on the side of love. And Ayana said it really well when she talked about how Jesus, you know, listened to the people on the margins, the the immigrant, the homeless, um, the widow, you know, it's so important for us to do that. And again, everything that Kaylee was saying was spot on. It's so important um, to err on the side of love because when you start to do that, when you start to value the relationship above your ideology, you don't look at someone as a project because they believe differently from you. Okay, well, I've got to be in a relationship so I can change the way they think. No, you need to be in a relationship with a person because that's that's the way we're meant to be. We're meant to be in community with people, in relationship with people. And that's the highest value we need to hold is those uh, relationships with others, not you got to believe what I believe. That's so true, Aaron. And, and it's something that we've repeated here before and we'll repeat again. Love and 
realize that your humanity is is bigger than your ideology. Thank you guys so much for listening again. Um, you can always check us out on our website, beautysaves.org. We have podcasts and we have uh, stories, journal entries up. In fact, Aaron had a recent journal entry that he put up last week. That's a really, really good entry. He'll definitely want to check that out. Check out Ayana and Wagner. They're really cool people. Follow Ayana on social media. She's super fun. Um, it's a mixture of really fun and cool content, plus like a little bit of personal and theology. So it's great stuff there. But again, thank you so much for listening. We love you guys. We appreciate you. And we will have more for you in a few weeks.